The reading today is taken from Acts 11, 1 to 18, and can be found on page 1105 in the Church Bibles. Peter explains his actions. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the, that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of the uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure un or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent from, to me from Caesarea to stop stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the, ha the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, as, as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. May the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In the reading we've just heard, we are hearing about God bringing about a revolution in the early church, a revolution that first of all took place in the heart and mind of Peter and then was spread from him to the leaders of the church and then indeed to the whole life of the church. And the revolution was that they, who were essentially Jewish people, brought up in the Jewish faith, 
and then responding to Jesus as the Messiah are suddenly confronted with the fact that God wants to draw non-Jewish people, Gentiles, into the life of the church. Now this was a revolution because they thought that Jesus had come simply to renew the nation of Israel. God had come to renew the covenant. Jesus had come to renew the covenant that God had made with Israel and that Israel was to be refreshed in its vocation to reach out to the nations of the world and draw them to Jerusalem where they might come and worship their God. There was no sense that they were going to go out and see people become Christians in their own right, in their own custom, in their own culture, and begin to respond to God in their own way. So this was breaking all the molds that they had in their minds, to which they had been conditioned. And Peter was just like them. He had been brought up as a Jew. He thought in Jewish ways, and he had no truck with Gentile people whatsoever. And yet suddenly he had been confronted with the fact that God was calling some Gentiles into the church and that he had to acknowledge that God was at work. So now he has been, as it were, hauled up to Jerusalem by the leaders there to say, what's been going on? How do you explain this rumor that we've heard that Gentiles have been brought into the church? Peter, have you lost the plot? Peter, have you been carried away on a wave of emotion? Do you know what you're doing? Give an explanation. And that's what Peter is doing in Acts chapter 11. He is giving a speech to the leaders of the church to explain what had come about. And I want us to look at this passage from the perspective of saying, what was it that had changed Peter's heart and mind? He was so deeply conditioned to think in a particular way, and yet God had turned that upside down and opened his heart in a way that would never have been predictable before. What was it that changed him, that made him more generous of heart and mind, able to reach out and embrace the Gentiles? Well, the first thing I notice is that there's a very strong sense that God is carrying Peter along in this direction. We read, for instance, that he's up on the roof praying, and suddenly a vision, a very powerful vision, comes to him, which confronts him with the possibility that he might have to engage with those whom he regards as unclean. Immediately after that, we read that three men have been sent to him unexpectedly, asking him to go down to Cornelius' household. As he greets those men, the Spirit told me, he says, to go with them. And when he arrives, they tell him that an angel has been there in the house telling them that he, Peter, was going to come and talk to them. And finally... As Peter does talk to them, the Holy Spirit falls upon that group of Gentiles in such a powerful way that it reminds him of the first Pentecost. And he just cannot deny that God is there in the midst and that these people are truly responding to Jesus. So all the time, it feels as though Peter is being outmaneuvered by God. Have you ever had an experience like that? 
I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. That's not for me. And then all of a sudden, God changes things, moves the goalposts, and suddenly you find you're going down a path that you had never expected. And as you look back on your life experience, you say, how did I get here? Well, because God has been gradually nudging you, prodding you, guiding you, helping you along the way. And we need to be responsive, and we sometimes need to be excited. Often we're scared when God calls us in that direction. Have you noticed how many times in the Bible when God goes to call somebody like Moses or Gideon or somebody else, they say, oh, not me. That's too frightening. I don't want to get involved in that challenge. Please, God, find someone else. Because it looks all too impossible that we could go along such a path and do such a thing. I wonder what the response was of that young lady who came up here to say she's going to Nepal for six months. I wonder what her reaction was when she first had that sense that God was calling her to go there. And so it is. And yet, God can work in such wonderful ways in our lives that we realize we're being pushed along a certain path because that's what he wants for us and that's where we find our wholeness. But having said that, let's be careful. The last thing we want to do is start thinking that God forces us to do things against our will because God never does that. God always works in a way that respects our free will and our dignity as persons. We sometimes talk about being instruments of God's will. Well, that's metaphorical language. But God never works in our lives, never draws us into a direction without giving us the freedom to choose. And if you look at this story carefully, you can see that Peter was able to choose and to cooperate with God at each stage of the journey. First of all, the vision may have come, but... Peter was already praying. He had chosen to go up on the roof and to pray to God, to open himself up and say, Lord, what is it you want to say to me this day? And when the three men came, he had a choice of going off with them or doing something else, and he did something else. He got hold of six brothers and said, you come with me on this journey. I want to test this out with you. I want you to share with me your perspective on what's happening here so that I don't just go it alone and maybe get it wrong. And so the six brothers are there, and later on we, say, we read him say, hear him saying, the Spirit told us, not just me. So he's responding to God's leading and just wanting to discern what God is doing. And then when he comes there, they say, an angel told us you were going to come and speak this morning. Did an angel say that I was coming this morning to speak to you? I, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> here I am, whether I did or not. <laughs> and Peter has the choice. He could have said, nope, this has gone far enough. I'm not speaking. But he doesn't. He says, yes, I have my heart, I have a passion to share the gospel with these people. And so he does. And then the Spirit comes down upon them. So we need to be careful to keep the balance between God's will and our will. There is a sense of cooperation and free choice always in the interaction between them. And St. Augustine, the great theologian of the 4th century, put it like this. Without God, we cannot. Without us, 
God will not. So there's free choice, and yet there's a great sense of God's leading. What else changed Peter's mind? The fact he was a man of prayer. The fact that he was there opening himself up to God, looking for God's leading, God's direction in his life. And that's why he was able to respond when those men came to the door and when he was in the midst of them and he saw the Spirit fall because he was open to God. He was looking for God to act and he was able to recognize it when it did happen. And when we pray, we are far more sensitive and far more expectant of what God is doing than when we don't pray. And William Temple, who was a great Archbishop of Canterbury, once said this, When I pray, coincidences happen. When I stop praying, the coincidences stop. Exactly so. Because coincidences are God instances. Or as the Americans put it, it ain't odd, it's God. When we see things happening that we don't expect sometimes, it's because God is there in the situation. So Peter was a man of prayer. Secondly, Peter was able to respond to the people in front of him. Those three men were sent to him, and Peter had a choice. Do I shut the door in their face, or do I listen to them, look at them, and go with them? There is an enormous difference between talking about people and talking to people. And Peter made the choice that he would listen to what they had to say, he would go with them down to the household of Cornelius, that he would be open to what experience they were describing. How many times in the past had Peter been dismissive of the Gentiles? The Gentiles are those who have not received God's covenant and God's revelation. The Gentiles are those who are unclean. How often had he walked the other side of a street or avoided them in the marketplace because in his eyes they were unclean. But now Peter is prepared to talk to them, to recognize that they are human beings, that they have a story, they have a need, they have a heart that is open to God. Can we go past this weekend without quoting Shakespeare? I think not. Here we go. Turning it around, Shylock in The Merchant of Venice says this about those who want to turn their backs on Jewish people. Hath not a Jew eyes? Hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, and passions? Fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is. Yes, many a powerful change of attitude and action comes about when people are aware of those they disagree with as fellow human beings. It was once easy to dismiss Muslims or Sikhs or Buddhists as part of heathen lands afar. But when they began to appear in our cities and on our doorstep, and we began to observe their devotion and their discipline and their sincerity, we had to look differently and begin to say, we need to dialogue with these people and maybe we can work alongside them as well. 
For centuries, the church was blind to the place of women in its fellowship. It kept them on the margins. It dismissed them. It silenced their voices. But now that we've got over that and God has moved us on, we're able to see the invaluable contribution they can make in every way and at every level of church life. If you read about the Church of England in the 1950s, it's a very shameful story because when many black people came to this country from the British Empire, many of them devout, enthusiastic Christians. The doors of the church were often shut. We don't want them in our congregations. And so many of them went and formed Pentecostal churches and are no longer present in the Church of England. You can look at other more sensitive subjects, like the attitude of the church to divorcees. When I was a curate, I knew a woman whose mother came every Sunday to church, and I said to her in the end, why don't you come? I know you've got a faith, why don't you come? Because she said, when I was a young woman, my marriage fell apart. And I was involved in the church, and one day I was there on a Saturday putting the flowers ready for the Sunday morning. And the vicar strode up to me and said, do I hear that you are a divorcee? And she said, I felt so embarrassed. And I said, yes, vicar, I'm afraid my marriage has come to grief. Well, then, you have no place here, he said. Get out of that part of the church. You shouldn't be organizing flowers. You shouldn't be doing anything that has to do with our worship of the holy God. And she said that in tears and with a terribly red face, I walked down the aisle and out to the door of the church, and I have never, ever been back since. And what about gays, lesbians, transgendered persons? Are we able in any way to look them in the face and say, you are fellow human beings? Can I hear your story? Can I bear to listen to your testimony? Can I be open in the way that Peter was open to the Gentiles? And can I in any way ask God, what are you saying to me about these people? It's when we have eye-to-eye personal relationships with people that God changes hearts and minds. And then the final thing that changed Peter was his first-hand experience of God at work. The tragedy is that often we want to be rational. We want to think things through, have a nice, neat theory. This is how God works. There's the box that we can contain God in, and so on and so forth. And we've got it all sorted out, and it all happens in a neat and very tidy way. And especially as Anglicans, we do like things to be rather neat and tidy and appropriate, don't we? We don't like people praying spontaneously or uh, raising hands or getting excited or dancing. The leaders of the church banned dancing in the third century. Do you know why? Because in the Gospels it tells us that dancing led to the beheading of John the Baptist. And so dancing might lead to the beheading of the local minister, you see, so he just can't have it. (laughs) Aren't we wonderful? Lovely rational argument, wasn't it? You know, this is what happened then, this is what's bound to happen now. 
So we don't have dancing. We don't have emotion. We don't have freedom. We just all sit here as if we're on an underground train, you know, minding our own business. Instead of the newspaper, you've got your hymn book and your prayer book, and you just look sideways at each other and keep straight on with God. Is that right? I don't know. But Peter was open to experience because he recognized, as we should all recognize, that we're not just disembodied minds. We have got emotions. We have got bodies. We have got spirits. And God can touch us and encounter us at any level of our being. It was G.K. Chesterton, that great witty apologist, who once said, insanity is not losing your mind. Insanity is keeping your mind and losing everything else. And sadly, that's so often been the case with Christians. And yet Pascal, the 17th century philosopher, once used a lovely phrase, the heart has its reasons too. The heart has its reasons too. God can confront us by what's happening right under our noses. And it's no good detaching yourself and saying, well, I need to analyze this now and go and think about it. You sometimes have to respond to it. And Peter did that. He said, look, the spirit has fallen here. The spirit is working in these people. I need to say, hallelujah, God is here amongst the Gentiles. And so we mustn't get obsessed with reason as the only way of discerning God's will. Of course we've got to be cautious about experience because sometimes we can get carried away by emotional sentimentality and sometimes we can say, whatever got into me after the event. But sometimes too, we need to learn to be spontaneous and to allow that to be God's way of saying, this is what I'm doing. So even Anglicans need to loosen up a bit and maybe, maybe Baston Hill is the place to pioneer this new form of Anglicanism. So putting all these factors together, Peter experiences a change of heart and mind towards the Gentiles. And then what he wants to do is for to share that with the church leaders up in Jerusalem, all of whom, of course, were well insulated against the Gentiles up there in the heart of Judaism. They only saw people becoming Christians who were devout Jews. So Peter wants to share with them, do you know what? God is doing something so big, it far transcends any of our horizons here, and I want you to see the truth of it. And the wonderful thing is, that they were sufficiently graceful to listen and then to recognize the truth of what Peter was saying. It says that, first of all, they were silent, and then they praised God, saying, so God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Even to the Gentiles. And I, what I love about it is that they not only said that, but they rejoiced they praised God. They were overjoyed that this had happened. It was a genuine, heartfelt response. It wasn't a question of sitting there saying, well, you know, <clears throat> having weighed up the pros and cons of what Peter has said, we might on this occasion at least be able to concede that perhaps in this particular case of Cornelius' household, an exception has been made to the rule and some Gentiles have become Christians. Didn't do that, did they? They said, wow, 
Look how God has been at work. Let's rejoice and let's enter into and share in this wonderful experience. That's real change of heart and mind. So I want to finish with a poem written by Edward Markham. They drew a circle that shut me out. Rebel, lunatic, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took them in. Love and I. That's what lies behind the story of Peter welcoming the Gentiles into the church. Love being what God is all about in his purposes at all times. Love that weaves in and out of our human attitudes and actions, challenging, chastening, and changing us so that we conform more and more to his loving ways. And then I, love and I, Peter, one individual, transformed by God by the prompting of that love to open his heart and his arms to those whom he had never included before, but who now he could see were brothers and sisters in Christ. If that's how it worked in Acts 11, that's how it still works today. So let's ask ourselves, who might God be moving me to include in my embrace as a Christian? Am I hard-hearted and blind to any group of people, to any individual, so that as far as I'm concerned, that's them and I'm us? How might God want to use this story about Peter being revolutionized, having his world turned upside down and changed into a whole new outlook. How might God want to use that to challenge you and challenge me? Amen.